Well, thanks again for being at Grace. Uh, we're glad you're here, as we've been saying. Uh, and we also welcome Paulding, who's streaming with us live today. And we're just, we're, we're glad you're here. We're going to wrap things up uh, as far as this series is concerned. And we're, we're on Thanksgiving weekend. Everybody have enough to eat, right, over the last few days? Yeah. Good Thanksgiving? Yeah, we had, we had a great Thanksgiving. It's good to see family and just, we have a lot to be thankful for. We're going to talk a little bit about that today. But uh, we're, we're in a series. Oh, by the way, we, something to be thankful for, something I'm thankful for, which is thankful for you. Uh, we raised between eight and $9,000 uh, $9, $9, last week for Heartbeat Hope Medical. So thank you very much for that. And uh, just that quick offering that we did. So thanks. Uh, for your generosity on that. I appreciate that. And uh, also, um, if you're a member of Grace, uh, there's one of those pamphlets uh, for you to vote, and uh, you just open that up. It's our budget and stuff. That's kind of what we do for accountability, and so you can mark that and then put it in a box before you leave. That would be fantastic. So we've been talking about hard sayings of Jesus, and so I have a question for you. Don't answer this out loud, but... Uh, is there any sin that we could commit that we cannot be forgiven for? No and yes. That's what we're going to talk about today. How many have heard of the unforgivable sin? How many have heard of blaspheming the Holy Spirit? All right. See, we're going to dive into this and refresh our memories for some of us and check this out. And, and this is um, what we're looking at today. It's in Matthew chapter 12, also in Mark 3 and some other places, but mainly Matthew chapter 12, we're going to begin in verse 22, and we're going to clear up this hard saying of Jesus that, that doesn't sound right to us, and here's, here's how it goes. Uh, so grab your devices or a Bible off the chair in front of you, it might help you, or pay attention to the screens, here's what it says. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I, by Beelzebub, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges." But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, 
it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So we got the context, right? Jesus is healing. More and more people are, are coming around him. They're flocking to him. Heals this demon-possessed man who cannot speak or see. After he's healed, he can do both. All the people see this as a miraculous sign. It's obvious to them. And so they're saying, is this man the son of David? Son of David means the Messiah that they've been waiting for that comes from the kingly line of the king of David. And they've been waiting for the Messiah now for hundreds of years. There's been all kinds of prophecies. But now he's fulfilling some of these prophecies. And people are saying, could this be him, the son of David? Not exactly the way they were expecting because they're expecting a king. And so as they're talking about that, then those who oppose Jesus are on the scene, the Pharisees. And then they're saying, notice, they cannot deny the supernatural nature of the miracle. Here's a man who, who has grown and people know him. And so they don't, they don't try to say, hey, well, this guy, he was just faking it. He could really uh, speak the whole time and, and see the whole time. He's just, they, don't, they don't try to do that. They cannot deny the supernatural nature of the miracle. So then what they do is they then ascribe that Jesus is doing this not by the work of God, or it's actually the work of the Holy Spirit, but that he's doing it through the power of Satan. Sort of just, they just stand everything on its head and they say, yeah, he did this miraculous thing. It's supernatural, you're right, but it's not by God, it's by Satan, the exact opposite. When Jesus catches this, then he responds to them and he, he argues back logically. He says, Satan can't cannot be divided against itself. He says, all these things Jesus is doing has all been for good, for good, for good. Satan's here to do evil, and now you're saying that I'm doing this good, that's evil, but that doesn't even make sense because a house divided can't stand itself. We couldn't, for example, battle England while we were in the Civil War ourselves. When you're battling yourself, you can't take on a foe. That's what he's saying. That doesn't even make logic sense. And then he uses this other analogy of the strong man's house. And he's, he's basically saying what, what Jesus is saying is, right now Satan has domain over the earth since sin has been here. And I'm coming in and I'm stronger than the strong man. Otherwise, how could I plunder his house? Otherwise, how can I take back my possessions or take his possessions from him? That's all of us, by the way. And so he uses that. And then he goes on to say, hey, you cannot be neutral. If you're not with me, you're against me. So he's laying all these arguments out to make this case that what they're saying. He, he then also says, hey, your own sons cast out demons. He's basically saying, your own Pharisees, people who follow you, say they cast out demons. Well, if, if you're saying I'm doing it by demonic power, then what are they doing? So he levels all these arguments against them. And so you have that going on, but that, that's just kind of setting the context of what's happening. And then what I want us to see as we work through this is as we work through this unforgivable sin, two things that we can be thankful for and one thing that we need to be thoughtful of, and it starts this way, we should be thankful for forgiveness 
because Jesus paid the cost. And I say this because we skip right over that in this passage. Look at verse 31. He says, therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. The point there is, we are so quick to want to figure out and identify this sin that can't be forgiven, we're forgetting that Jesus is telling us how much forgiveness he does offer us, that any sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. And it sounds like a contradiction, but I'm I'm just pointing out that God's forgiveness is amazing. Don't miss that as we work through what Jesus is saying. It teaches us Jesus teaches us here the enormous willingness of God to forgive. But even with that, the second part of that is saying that people are capable of putting themselves outside or beyond God's enormous forgiveness. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is unusual. Forgiveness is is against our nature. Forgiveness from God is the most costly thing in the universe. That's what scripture tells us. And, And as we recognize this cost, that's what makes Christians different than all other people. How they respond to that good news of forgiveness. That Jesus, that even though we're alienated from God, Jesus came, lived a perfect life, but ultimately came to die for our sins. And when we get that, that changes us. Some people, they will hear that. Hey, the whole, the good news, or same thing, the gospel, which is basically teaching us, and it starts with bad news. We're all alienated from God. We're all rebels against God. We're all God's enemies. We start out that way, even if we don't think we are. If we're not for him, we're against him, he's saying. We all start out that way, but because God loves us, he makes a way. Because we're in trouble, not only are we separated from God, God says that in a just universe and perfect justice is on its way, God's saying sin, all sin, has to be punished. Our sin has to be punished. Bad news for us because the punishment's way more serious than we think because we always underestimate the seriousness of our own sin. And the punishment is separation from God forever. But God makes a way by allowing his son Jesus to come to walk our planet, never commit a sin, so the only one who didn't have any sins of his own, and to voluntarily die to pay the just and right penalty for our sin. Jesus does that for us. Now, when, when you hear that, people respond in different ways. Some people, and you need to be careful with this, you kind of hear that and you're thinking, yeah, I've heard that all my life. Yeah, oh, yeah, I'm good for that. But it's never impacted you. It's never really changed your life. And other people hear that and it stops them in their tracks and it's like, boom, and, and their life has changed forever. I'll give you an example. In Fremont, Ohio, back in 1955, there was a murder. And a man named Sam Tannehill was a, a Fremont native. And uh, he was a young man. He actually died at 27. And, and he just was on a crime spree his entire life. In 1955, he returned to Fremont after doing five years 
in the uh, Missouri State Penitentiary. And when he got here, he's staying in motels. Family was from here. But he decided that he was going to rob an all-night restaurant called The Hut. And The Hut was located where Stott's music is, that little bitty building. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Has anybody heard of The Hut? Has anybody even heard this story? All right, some of you have heard this story. All right, how many have not heard this story? All right, I'll go ahead and tell it then. All right, so anyway, so this guy goes into this restaurant to rob it, all-night restaurant, just one lady working there. Her name was Shirley Bradford, and she's an all-night waitress cook, the only person that works there. Well, he goes in, there's a cab driver there drinking coffee. The cab driver knows the waitress, is kind of suspicious of Sam, so he doesn't leave when he finishes his coffee. He just stays there. So Sam gets discouraged and Sam leaves. After Sam leaves, he notices the cab driver leaves. Sam goes back in, robs the place, gets all the money and the till, and then he realizes that he needs to take Shirley with him because as soon as he leaves her, she's going to tell the police. So he decides he's going to drive her out of town and drop her a few miles out of town so then she would have to walk back and that's going to give him his getaway time. Well, so they head off. But Shirley recognizes Sam. Shirley is actually friends with Sam's younger sister. Sam doesn't know that because he's been in the state pen for five years in Missouri, so he doesn't realize the connection. And so as they're driving, Shirley confronts him, and she basically says, I know who you are. I know your sister. And when this is over, I'm going to tell your sister what a rotten, lousy person you are. Well, now Sam realizes that he's got a problem if he just drops her off. So he stops at the Tyndale Bridge and he kills her with a tire iron right there. He's actually fairly quickly apprehended. They take him to the scene of the crime. He confesses. He's sentenced to death by electrocution. He's in jail here in Fremont and two men visit him and they actually bring him a Bible. Actually, they told him they were going to bring him a Bible, and they couldn't find the Bible. And then one of the men, their daughter, had a brand new Bible that was given to him, and she gave the Bible to give. And because of that, that made it even more that Sam wanted to read it. And long story there is, Sam ends up reading this Bible and ultimately ends up becoming a follower of Christ while he's on death row. While he's on death row, and I believe that was down at Columbus at the time, uh, several times his execution was delayed. And in the meantime, he's interacting with people and meeting people and getting to know people on death row. And by all accounts, people say, this guy is a completely different person. He's not, he's not arguing his case. He's admitting it. He's prepared to die. He's good with it. He's just blown away by God's forgiveness. And he just wants every minute he lives to serve God with whatever time he has left. About a year after that, He's executed, 27 years old. You see, when Sam first heard the gospel, this good news that Jesus Christ is offering salvation, he thought, no way for me. I'm a murderer. I've, I've done nothing but wrong my entire life since I was 10 years old. But then he finally came to the realization that Christ was offering him forgiveness. And he embraced that, repented, and became a follower of Christ in prison. You see, forgiveness 
It's not natural. It's outrageous. It doesn't seem right that a murderer who took a life of an innocent lady from our community would go free as far as God was concerned. But that's exactly what God offers. And Sam was one of those people that when we heard that and he finally understood it, he embraced it with all of his heart and God changed his life completely. We, we should be thankful for forgiveness because we realize the cost that Jesus paid for it. And so all Christians who, because you have to be a, if you're a Christian, you have to understand that. And, and because of that, all Christians should be incredibly thankful for their forgiveness that was purchased for us through Jesus. And not only thankful for that, but as we're going to look in the text, we should also be thankful for repentance because the Holy Spirit makes it possible. We're thankful for forgiveness because Jesus paid the price we're thankful for repentance. That's us changing our mind about God and becoming a believer. We're, we're thankful for repentance because the Holy Spirit makes it possible in our hearts. Look at verse, back to verse 32. It says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, this is a little perplexing because we know God exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three personalities, three in one, still only one God, hard for us to figure out. It's just a revealed truth that we accept and know that God's infinite and he's way higher than us, and so we just accept that as true. And so Jesus comes from heaven and he clothes himself in humanity sort of like disguises himself as a human being, but he comes in submission to the Father and he voluntarily gives up his use of his divine attributes for the time that he's on earth. He, he strips himself of his power and comes humbly as a human being. But when he does work his power, it's the work of the Holy Spirit through him because he's voluntarily laid his, his divine attributes aside. And so that's how he's ministering on earth. And when Jesus came, he veiled his identity as God because he looked like just a regular guy. He didn't walk around with a halo over his head or anything. People just interacted with Jesus just like a regular person. Scripture even says there's nothing spectacular about the way Jesus looked, just, just a normal guy. Even when he refers to himself as the son of man, even that, because that's a phrase from the book of Daniel, but that could be used as of a human being in Daniel, but also that is used in Daniel as the coming Messiah, really the God-man, God. And so he says son of man, and the Roman authorities, they don't think anything about it. That doesn't sound very threatening. He's the son of man. We're all the son of men. But the Jewish people know when he says that, oh, Daniel, he's, this is a veiled reference to a claim of deity. And so all that's going, but he doesn't just come out and say it. 
And so here Jesus is saying, hey, you can speak against me. You can blaspheme the Son of God, and you can be forgiven. And as a matter of fact, a bunch of us here have probably done that, maybe all of us. And Paul did it. Peter did it. And they all were believers, or Paul became a believer. They were forgiven for that. We can speak against Jesus and be forgiven because Jesus knows that he has veiled his identity. Not everybody will totally grasp that, especially at first. It takes some processing. And at the beginning, we're all rejecting him. But curiously, he says, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Well, what's happening there? Why is he saying that? Well, it all has to do, we discover that in the context. Remember what's happening. Jesus is doing supernatural things that everybody knows, okay, a man cannot do this. We've not seen anything like this. There's no way. I've known this guy. He's been blind for 30 years, and now he can see because Jesus did something to him. Maybe he just spoke a word. Or maybe he put his hands on him. He did it different ways. And so you have this group of people, the Pharisees, that they're so firm in their rejection of Christ that even when they see a miracle, no matter what they believe about Jesus, when they see the Spirit of God or the work of God happen, that this is supernatural, only God can do this, one that they can't even deny, because these things were just happening right there. They couldn't deny that something supernatural happened. They end up ascribing that supernatural work to Satan rather than God. And when they do that, They're putting themselves in a position where they cannot be forgiven because it's the spirit that works in our heart that even allows us to come to repentance. And here these guys are seeing the clear work of God that they know to be true. And they're rejecting him. And this this is not the only time this happened in Scripture. Remember after the resurrection of Jesus, the authorities... They sealed the tomb. They put Roman guards outside the tomb because they knew that Jesus said he would be resurrected, the sign of Jonah. We're going to be talking about that next week. They knew all that. And then all of a sudden, boom, Jesus is gone, and the guards are like, whoa. And and what happened? They paid. So they knew the resurrection was true, but they still rejected Christ. So they pay off the guards and say, we'll, we'll make sure your lives are spared. Here, take this money. This is our story. And that's all recorded for us in first century history by first century authors that have been preserved for us by four different men. And we, we might think, how could that... How could somebody see a miracle, know that it was from God, and still be like, nope, not buying it. Nope, I still don't believe. I can't deny that happened, but I still don't believe. And that sounds so odd to us, but people do that today. I've talked to, to many atheists. I actually enjoy talking to atheists. But occasionally, I'll talk to someone who's, who's an atheist 
And not that this is true of all atheists, but sometimes I'll talk to an atheist who's honest enough to tell me something, and he'll say something like this. Kevin, actually, I don't care if this is true because I don't want it to be true. I don't want it to be true that there's a God. So even though you're showing me all this evidence that I can't really argue against, it doesn't matter to me because even if there is a God, I want to act like there isn't a God so I can be in charge of my own life. Because I don't want to feel like I have a judge over me. I don't want to feel like somebody could tell me right and wrong. I don't want to submit my life to anybody. So I feel a lot better about that when I just don't think there is a God. But when it comes right down to it, even if there is a God, I don't care. It's the same thing. Their mind is made up before you get in the argument. Then you realize the whole the presenting evidence does not matter. I'm not saying this is true of every atheist. I'm saying some of them. It doesn't matter. They don't want it to be true, and they'll just tell you that. It's not about the evidence. It takes you a while to get there. But you'll finally get to that spot. And you realize this isn't a thing about seeking truth. This isn't a matter of evidence. This is what they want. Those committing the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit are incapable of repentance because even after seeing the clear work and proof of the Spirit's power, they still not only reject it, but they don't want anything to do with it. To them, it's bad. They don't want it. And they persist in their unbelief. So we're thankful for forgiveness because Jesus paid the cross, the cost on the cross. We're thankful for repentance because it's actually the Holy Spirit that even makes that possible. The day that you start realizing, wow, this is true. God loves me and he died for me. That's the Spirit working in your heart. And, and we can push the Spirit away and try not to think about it and, and uh, get busy with other stuff so we're not as uncomfortable. But that's God's spirit drawing us to himself. So we're thankful for forgiveness, thankful for repentance, and then the last thing is we're thoughtful about our own goodness because God warns us of its danger because that's what's happening here. Why, why do we need to be thoughtful concerning our own goodness? Because right here in this story, it's the Pharisees doing what every man-made religion in the world does. They've come up with a system for them to be good, for them to be moral, for them to be right before God, to where if they do this, they feel like God owes them. So they follow all the rules, even though they had good rules. They perverted that by thinking, by following all the rules, it would put God in the position to reward them. So following the rules was just to get what they want, not to be right with God, just to get what they want. So they were good by their own standards. They were moral people. 
They lived moral lives. They followed all the rules, but that was so God would reward them by sending the Messiah who would come as rightful king and overthrow Rome and then put them back on top where they wanted to be. Man-made religion. Do a bunch of stuff and God owes you and will reward you and then you get to go to heaven. That is the opposite of Christianity. Please understand that. That's exactly the opposite of what Jesus Christ taught us. He's saying it's not good people that go to heaven. Jesus is saying it's humble people who know they're not good and turn to Christ for salvation. Humble people who know they can't save themselves. Humble people that know they can't do good enough to earn them anything with God. That's who goes to heaven. People that God loves and wants a relationship and offers that. My fear is that even in a church like Grace, you have this thinking because it's naturalistic. It's natural for us. It's human nature. It's a better way to say that. You know, it goes like this. Maybe we're just raised up in a moral family, just a good family. And we're taught to do the good things. And then we end up coming in to a church because there's a whole bunch of other people that are moral people. And so then we come into church and then we're comfortable because we're around other moral people and we want to be moral. And then we start learning some stuff about the Bible. And as we increase our knowledge about the Bible, then we, just because of the virtue of by being there, we kind of end up into leadership in the church. But we do all that, but we miss the core of the gospel. We miss the core of what the church is, that we are all sinners saved only by grace, that we deserve nothing, that it's only Christ. And here's what happens. And then people live in church for a while, even as leaders, and then either they're overtaken by, by some big sin or temptation or whatever, and then they just turn away and they embrace this instead. And then you'll go to them and you'll say, hey, you need to turn back to Christ. And their attitude is, already did that, done that, that did nothing for me. I, I'm, I've tried that. This is the way I want to live now. Or maybe they didn't even get caught up in some sense. They just say, move to another town. And then they don't find a church that was exactly like their old church. And so then they get out of the church habit. And then a few years go by and they just get kind of comfortable in that. And then somebody will say, hey, you need to come back to church. You need to come to Christ. You need to be a believer. And they've just gotten rid of all that. They're still li living a pretty moral life, but they just don't see it. And, and they'll say, no, I've already tried that. I've done that. Been there, done that. It doesn't do anything for me. And you're saying, no, you don't understand. You haven't embraced the gospel. You haven't experienced what real Christianity is. And they don't believe you because they think they have. And so there's like nothing left. They think they've already done that. And it didn't bring the fulfillment that they were looking for. But they never embraced Christ. They just played church. They missed it. They missed the core of what Christianity is. They never come back. The gospel says it's sheer grace. It's a gift. 
It's not our morality. Our morality is a detriment to us when we think about it that way. So what he's, Jesus is telling us, is there any hope for us? There, there's always hope if we're willing to turn to God. The thing about it is, if you commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, you never want to turn to God. There's always hope when you hear there's an offer of forgiveness and and you want to respond to that. There's always hope when the Holy Spirit does a work in your heart and you're able to turn away and think differently, change your mind about who Jesus is with a desire to follow him. But if you commit this sin that Jesus is talking about, there's no hope because you'll never repent because you'll never want to, because you've made a predetermined stance to be in opposition to the work of God, and people do that. Let me just say this. If you're sitting here and you're thinking, whoa, Kevin, I may have done that. You don't know my life. I, I may have done that, and you're saying there's no hope. Let me just tell you, if you're bummed that you might have done something that will keep you from the love of God, you haven't done it. It's the only time you can celebrate your anxiety. You know, if you're worried that you did this, it's the only time that the worry is actually a good thing. Because if you're worried that you did this, if you're worried you've done something that will separate you from God, then you haven't committed this sin. Because if you committed this sin, you would never worry about that. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. God loves you. Some of you, maybe you're here and you've done the church thing all your life, but, but your life has never really been transformed because you kind of started out moral, and I get that. There's not a, as big a change, but somewhere you have to be able to look back in your life and see where God's forgiveness, his outrageous forgiveness rocked your world and changed you from the inside out. If you, if you can't see that, then that's, that's a warning, that's a danger. And some of you may be sitting here thinking, yeah, I never want that. I'm just here to make somebody happy. Somebody may be here thinking, I don't know why I'm here. I mean, I was just with family, visiting family, and we did Thanksgiving together, and I, I wasn't leaving till Monday, and all of a sudden everybody jumped in a car and came here. I don't even know what I'm doing here. Maybe God knows what you're doing here. Maybe God wants you to just come to a place where you'll hear that God knows you perfectly. God knows every detail of your life. And he loves you more than you can ever comprehend. And not just with words, with action. So he allowed his son Jesus to voluntarily give up his life, suffer, 
and die a torturous death, feel that pain, that rejection, that ridicule, that mocking. He went through all that in order to pay your sin debt so that you can be freely forgiven without violating God's justice. And he invites you to come to him and you just need to hear that. God loves you and wants a relationship with you forever because he does with everybody. But we have to respond. And it's only through the Spirit that we even have the ability to respond. God has to give it to us. But please hear this. There is no neutrality with God. If you're sitting here going, I'm not against Jesus. I'm just not a Jesus guy. I'm not a Jesus freak. There's no neutrality with God. You are either a follower of Christ or you're in opposition to him. You can't be neutral. You're either all in or you're not in. And Jesus is inviting all of us to be in. He's paid the price. It's a free gift. He invites us all to come, but we have to respond with faith, and that just means that we place our trust in the provision that God has made for us through Jesus, that his death on the cross was enough to pay for all our sins, past, present, future, and that we repent with the Holy Spirit's help, which means we change our mind about Jesus and we turn to want to follow him. If you have never done that in your life, babe, there's no better day than today. In just a moment, we're going to close in prayer, but there's a room called Room One. It's that corner of our auditorium. And I'll be there and some other pastors will be there. If you have any questions, come and talk. You can stay for 30 seconds or 10 minutes or whatever you want to do. We'll not keep you in there. If you have any questions, just come in and ask, especially if you're not sure where you stand with your salvation. We'll at least give you something to read if you have no time at all. Let's stand together. Father God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for loving us, and we thank you for forgiveness that comes at such a high price, the most costly thing in the universe, the death of your son. Thank you for his death and his resurrection. And Father, we thank you for repentance. Because even though we're doing it, we know we can only do it through the power of your spirit, that you enable us to even do that. And thanks for loving us so fully and so freely. Thanks for loving us since we've been in existence even before we were born. Thanks for loving us with so much cost. And we thank you that you let us hear it. Lord, help those of us who are followers, Lord, to follow you more closely. None of us deserve your salvation, and let us live lives of gratitude for you. And for those, uh, our friends here, who don't know you, Lord, I, we pray that your spirit would impact their heart, that they would see that they have a need for a relationship with you, and they would seek to find out how that gets taken care of, that their heart would turn to you, just ask you for forgiveness and place their trust in Jesus alone for their salvation. And we pray that that would happen even today. In Christ's name, amen.
Hey, thanks for being here. Uh, so glad to share your Thanksgiving weekend with us. Next Sunday, brand new series. Love to see you then. You're dismissed. Have a great day.